Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 33, Lannisters of the Bald and Rockless. I'm Scatty, we have with us Brooke and Matt as always. Hello. Hey. And uh, tonight we will be returning to you after our brief hiatus uh, with a brief summary here of what we're covering is A Storm of Swords. We've got the prologue, we've got Jamie 1, Catelyn 1, Arya 1, Tyrion 1, all number ones, no repeats. That's what happens when you start a new book. That's chapters 0 to 4 of A Storm of Swords according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. And uh, as a quick reminder, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment that we call Davos After Dark. Don't worry, we'll warn you with uh, Matt's musical jingle, and uh, you'll you'll be fully aware that we're about to go into spoiler territory. If you want to contact us, same as ever, uh, you can find us uh, through DavosFingers.com. That's our Tumblr site. We email at wearedavosfingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or you can find us on Facebook and uh, communicate there. Uh, thanks, guys, for uh, keeping so active during our our, uh, our off season. It was great to interact with you. Matt did the majority of that. Thanks, Matt. But uh, we were all watching and reading and paying attention, and having fun with it. So thanks for uh, for keeping the stream open. Uh, also, it was glorious. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, and guys, guys, have you heard the full length version of the John song yet? Because you should. You really, I have. really should. You have. Uh, I think you probably heard it. Thousands of times while recording all those awesome guitar parts. You guys, it's amazing. Balls, honestly, look it up. It's awesome. Okay, so all you have to do is run over to Bandcamp.com and search for Davos Fingers, and you'll find it. I did this last night to make sure I was giving the right instructions. Bandcamp.com. Search for Davos Fingers. The official address, we are DavosFingers.Bandcamp.com, can also get you there. Uh, we'll be posting a link on our Twitter site as we already have, uh, or sorry, our Tumblr site rather, as we already have. But uh, you guys, it's awesome. Matt has Matt has put forth uh, a great effort. Uh, if you liked Breakfast with Cersei, that's also there and available to you, uh, <laughs> which I was a huge fan of. But the John song is awesome. It'll get you. It'll get you going. So go check it out. I, I have. It's a crow's life for me in my head. Pretty much every working day. It's a crow's life <laughs> for me. So yeah. Good. good. Yeah. Good. It's a good part. I'm glad you like it. My favorite part uh, is still. Just... Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead with your favorite part. Oh, you want to hear? You want to hear me singing your praise? And... I just want to. Yeah, I'm just sitting back right now and I licked basking the... in the glory. I licked the left nut. Let me get to the right nut now. Jesus. Kind of. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was like, hey, that's not a lyric in the song. <laughs> <laughs> no, my favorite part is the uh, when you look at Aunt Lyanna, your your hair, her hair is the same. I love that part every time. Uh, hopefully that wasn't a spoiler. Uh, so, uh, what were you going to say, Matt? Go ahead. I was just going to remind everyone that um, it's uh, you pick the cost for the album. So, you know, if if pennies are tight, which I understand, don't worry about it. Just download it, and yeah. you can get it for freezies if you want. Uh, we just wanted to get it out to everyone and hope you enjoy it. That's yeah. the biggest deal with it. Download Any and thing, all proceeds, however, do go to Davos Fingers. So. Um, it's not buying my kids Christmas presents. It's not doing any of that stuff. It's helping to hopefully make the podcast better. So we appreciate everyone who has um, been as generous as they have to donate even a couple bucks to the cause. Yeah, we got really good feedback from it so far, and uh, I just want to keep I just want to keep promoted because it's uh, because I'm so amazed by by Maddie's awesome talent. Okay, off season update. Uh, we're gonna keep this short and to the point, but. Uh, Quick update from the fingers about what we did on the off season. Brooke, you want to lead us off? Oh yeah. Oh, I worked, man. Got I got uh, like cats to feed, 
uh, oh. thinking to feed themselves. Yeah, I was. Uh, I visited some friends out in Montreal and New York, which was super cosmopolitan and sophisticated, and was excellent. And um, yeah, winter is coming. Is what I said out loud to anyone who would listen the past month. <laughs> winter what is coming. Doublesfingers.com. Doublesfingers.com. Just everyone you want. <laughs> and I shoved them a little. <laughs> Get them into that holiday spirit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right, on my end, uh, okay, so first of all, I participated in a Hypes Watch broadcast. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, uh, check it out. Uh, you can go to YouTube and find, uh, just search Hypes Watch. I'm in the episode uh, Danny9, but you can check out all their stuff. Just search for Hypes Watch and find it. Uh, it was super fun getting with those guys, a little bit of different different vibe. Uh, fun, but uh, made me miss uh, my friends Brooke and Matt a lot, too. Uh, beyond that, uh, had our 11th annual Halloween party with my wife, dressed up as, uh, Robert Brathy and Cersei Lannister. I've been neglectful in not posting pictures of that, but I will. It was awesome and a lot of fun. Definitely gotta post photos. Oh my god, that's amazing. Look, my, for the first time I think ever, my wife looked at a picture that had just been taken of the two of us, and she said, honey, you look hot in this. On, honest to God, I think it's the only time I've ever heard those words come out of her mouth. I swear it. It was oh, awesome. I can't wait. Did you see Wait, my, my reply to that comment on Facebook? Uh, something about you should share this with our audience. I don't. I don't remember. No, I said I. Uh, this is one of the first times in my life that I agree with your wife. <laughs> you guys do fight a lot. No, Aowen is delightful. She's wonderful. She is. She's very, she's, uh, she's like the exact opposite of me attitude wise. She's super positive all the time and, and bright and fun. Very, very agreeable. Yes. Yeah. Easy to get along with. Yeah. Like everything good <laughs> that I'm not. Uh, and then, okay. So I took a role, uh, as Scrooge. <laughs> How fitting. Uh, I took a role as Scrooge in a Christmas Carol, uh, for a, a local theater company that I work with, work with occasionally. Uh, which is going to be awesome. It runs in December, obviously, as A Christmas Carol usually does. Scrooge um, is the star. Stop downplaying it. That's yeah. awesome. I don't think I downplayed it. Uh, I shouldn't upplay Took the it. Part. We're honorably given the part. Uh, sure, yeah. Honorably earned the part. There you go. With your tremendous acting chops. Did, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, so... Let's not waste a bunch of time with it, but the, like this is just they're they're people I've worked with several times before, and so they they know me, and so I didn't I didn't really even audition or anything. It was just kind of, would you like to do it kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, but better. It, it was awesome. Yeah, so that's been a lot of fun. And then, guys, I did some I did some <clears> like, <throat> like free reading, like I, I read non of ice and uh, ice and fire books. It was it was a song of ice and fire books. It was awesome. I haven't done that since we started. And yeah. uh, it was garbage, trashy teenage novels, um, but they they were fun. Sometimes you just need that. Yeah, yeah. you need yeah. that. Sometimes. Um, so the entirety of the that vampire series. Oh, what's it called? Twilight. You know what it's Twilight. called. Look, you know what it's. That's called. not what I read. Uh, it's the the series I read. Uh, there were the fifth and sixth books, I think, of a series called Gone, the Gone novels. You can look mm. them up. Um, they're about uh, a bunch of kids that uh, they they live in a town and they wake up one morning and all of the adults, anyone over the age of 15, I believe, are just gone. They wake up and everyone's gone. They just disappear. Good premise. Yeah. And 
<clears throat> there's a whole bunch of other science fiction-y shit that goes on, and um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I think there's seven books total, or maybe it's six, I can't recall. But it's, yeah, they've been good reads. They're just, they're light and fun. Uh, yeah, so other than that, uh, just watching shows. I uh, picked up Clone Wars again uh, for Star Wars so I could get uh, get back on that, and been watching Archer, too. That's pretty much been my break. And Matt? I just, I just played around. Uh, well, you yeah, spent a ton of time. A you spent a ton of time on that album, we know. Yes, uh, especially the John song took a lot of time. Um, I've never been much of a lead guitar player. So, uh, figuring out those lead parts took more time than I expected it to, but that's okay. It was a lot of fun to do. Um, and then I did. I mentioned that I might write some stuff like uh, Matt's Rhaegar theory and everything. I didn't even start. Nothing. <laughs> didn't do a thing. Excellent. Uh, Good job. However, the reason I didn't is because of the the kind of the creative wellspring that the podcast kind of opened up inside of me again, and I was I just wrote music. I wrote a ton of music over the break, and uh, I, I don't think anyone besides me potentially will ever hear these songs, but it was for me, and uh, it felt good and therapeutic and all that stuff to get back into doing that. I haven't written uh, before we wrote the. I started writing the jingles for this podcast. I hadn't written a song in a couple years, and I used to write fairly prolifically. It doesn't mean they were good songs, but I wrote a lot of them. Um, and so this is this has felt good to be able to get back into that vibe a little bit again. Awesome. Um, that is awesome. And, yeah, re- I read a couple books, too. read Night of the Seven Kingdoms, which is great. Um, I read Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park, which wasn't great. I didn't enjoy it at all. And... Um, yeah, I'm watching. You, you mentioned the the teenage trash stuff, Scad. I'm watching The Flash on Netflix. That's not trash. That's amazing television. I I am enjoying it. Like, there's parts that where I'm like, I really this this isn't my thing, but I'm still watching it. I haven't stopped yet. I mean, it can be wholesome and good. It's difficult to, but I feel like they've achieved it with The Flash. Also, I quite enjoy the gentleman who plays Barry Allen. Yes. His real name is Grant Gustin. Um, I do him. <laughs> that's how, how that's going. Well, me too. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. I could taste back. I could taste. Uh, I thought you said you were going to quit that show. I thought I was too, man. I can't quit you, baby. Oh, like a bad Led Zeppelin song. I'm just watching it. Anyways. All right. That's me. Okay, that's it for the news and notes section. We got a prologue coming up, and that's for Matt. You ready, Matt? I'm ready. Hey, Blood Riders, it's Matt in the editing room. Sorry for all the audio issues we we had to start out this episode. Believe me, it does get better from here on out. Uh, but my prologue summary was particularly bad in terms of cutting in and out and things like that, so we decided to re-record that really quick. So you'll hear a bit of an audio difference here, so don't be too thrown off by it. Just trying to make it better for y'all. Hope you continue to enjoy the cast. We sure had fun with it. Prologue, got me feeling kind of anxious. Prologue, am I gonna make it out of this alive? Prologue, got me feeling kind of anxious. Prologue, am I gonna make it out of this alive? The opening line of Storm of Swords is, The day was gray and bitter cold, 
And we're reminded of this throughout the chapter. Bare flesh can't touch steel, spit freezes before it hits the ground, and aside from the men of the Night's Watch camped atop the fist of the first men, signs of life seem to have disappeared completely. So we find ourselves lost in the mind of Chet, a member of the Night's Watch and a leechman's son, who was sent to the wall after killing a girl who refused to sleep with him when he was younger because of the unsightly boils that covered his face and neck. He was kind of ugly. So after serving in what he considered the cushy role of caring for Maester Eamon for a few years at the wall, Chet was replaced in that position by Samwell Tarly. And you'll remember this was done at the urging of Jon Snow. And Chet was then sent to the kennels where he would care for the hounds. So bitter to the core at not only this, but the world in general for dealing him this hand in life, Chet is devising a scheme that will free him from the Night's Watch and allow him to start a new life. So returning with two of his companions, Lark the Sisterman, great name, and Small Paul, as well as his hounds from an unsuccessful hunt after finding bear prints in the snow, Chet reviews the plan with his co-conspirators, if they can be called that, for our benefit. So during the third watch of the night, Chet and his merry band will stealthily kill Lord Commander Mormont, as well as other leaders of the Night's Watch and even Samwell Tarly, who they consider a threat because of his ability to work with the ravens and potential to rat them out by sending one of those ravens off. Chet's reasoning is that Mormont is off his rocker, leading them beyond the wall in what was originally considered to be a ranging to discover the whereabouts and or fate of Benjen Stark and other missing rangers, and also to figure out why the wildlings were all leaving their villages. The mission, however, has seemed to evolve more into one of suicide, with rumblings that the band of 300 Night's Watchmen, a third of the overall Night's Watch's strength, will assault the large group of Thousands of wildlings that are slowly making their way south to the wall. Uh, Chet's going to have none of that and intends to escape into the wild after the assassinations, reasoning that if they kill certain members of the Watch's leadership, the rule of seniority will fall to someone like old Serat and Withers, who would most certainly cut his losses and lead the Black Brothers back to the wall, uninterested in hunting down Chet and his band uh, with the approaching threat of the wildlings. So Chet, for his part, is excited at the possibility of starting a new life beyond the wall. He even takes as his inspiration our very favorite Craster, who Chet glorifies as a king who has his own keep and tons of wives to take care and attend to his every need. And hey, while marrying your daughters doesn't sound like that good of an idea to me, maybe to a leechman's son who spent the last few years in the watch, it sounds kind of appealing. I don't know, just trying to be open-minded. Anyways, upon arriving back at the Fist, Chet happens upon Samuel Tarly, who along with Gren and our hero Dolores Ed is practicing archery. Sam, of course, is not performing well, despite the encouragement of his friends, and Chet makes sure he knows it. Even when Sam rather luckily hits a target dead center, Chet reminds Sam that trees aren't moving vicious enemies, and predicts that he would piss himself at the first sight of an attacking wildling. So after a quick dinner, where Chet spends most of the time brooding over how bad his life sucks and sizing up and worrying about his co-conspirators, Chet, along with all the Black Brothers, is called to a fireside meeting with Lord Commander Mormont. There, Mormont informs the men that they will take the fighting to the approaching wildlings, who are moving down the milk water, and will be upon them in about ten days. 
Mormont's plan is to go around the other side of the fist and prepare a series of ambushes, hoping that quick mobile attacks will slowly but effectively chip away at the horde of wildlings, who are burdened with women, children, old dudes, and all their worldly supplies, animals, things like that. Chet, of course, knows that by morning, Mormont will be dead, and begins to settle in for the night. But suddenly, as if the gods were laughing in his boily face, it begins to snow. Chet despairs, his tears freezing to his cheeks. Now that it's snowing, how will they find their caches of stored food in the snow? How will they move swiftly on horseback when all sorts of obstacles might be hidden under the snow? And how will they cover their tracks from the snow? Resigning himself to the fact that all is now lost, Chet decides to take care of one thing he can still take care of, Sam Tarley. So he approaches Sam's lean-to, where Sam is slumbering. Chet pulls out his dagger and prepares to slit Sir Piggy's throat, when all of a sudden, the horns of the night's watch's perimeter sounds. This, of course, wakes Samwell, who discovers Chet and asks him if it was one blast or two. Remember, one blast means returning rangers, but two blasts means approaching wildlings. Three blasts, well, that hasn't been sounded in thousands of years. It signifies the approach of others. So a second blast sounds, and Sam begins to don his armor, seemingly oblivious to the fact that Chet is there with an unsheathed dagger. But then Chet, still intent on making his kill, suddenly does what he claimed Samwell would do earlier in the chapter. He wets himself. And why? Because the horn sounded a third time. Did you do that horn noise here? That's really good. Brilliant, right? Land Bloom impersonation. <laughs> really good. Man, this Chet guy, he's quite the character, isn't he? The whole uh... time, I had Radiohead's creep in my head as I was reading this. I'm a creep. Yeah, you're giving him too much credit, and he's not worthy of that song. Second, somebody like kicks an innocent dog. I'm like, well, we're done. We're done forever. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's yeah, it's it's like something's mentally screwed up with this kid because not only has he like hurt people, but he takes joy in doing it. Right. Like he talks about how sweet it was to kill Bessa, that girl. Sticking the knife in her was sweet, he said. You know, he's kicking dogs like it's no problem. He's imagining how cool it'll be to see cutting through the folds of fat in Sam's neck. Like, this guy's messed up. Yeah, he's he's got problems. There's no other way to put it. He grew up without any advantages, mm-hmm. with a dad that beat him for squishing a single uh, leech. Um, knocked him around. Knocked sure. him around. Grew up ugly his whole life. I'm not trying to make excuses for the guy. No. He's just got nothing going for him. And he's... Yeah. Like most people, he's just taking an opportunity to try to make his life better. He's like, this is garbage. I don't believe in this, and I'm going to make something happen. And And you know what? I don't really blame him for that. No, I don't blame him for it. I mean, look, he's an awful piece of garbage. Let's not, like, sugarcoat it. 
But do I blame him for the choices he's trying to make right now in this instant? Not really. Other than the yeah, killing Sam thing, which seems like revenge. Which it was. Yeah. That was just, I'm going to do something because I can still do this, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's interesting that such a piece of shit gets the honor of a prologue POV. Oh, the brilliance <laughs> of George. Mm. Mm. What do you guys think this means? That he gets his own POV? Yeah, and that, just like in Game of Thrones, we're brought back to Beyond the Wall oh. for the the prologue. Mm. Well, mm. okay, so... <laughs> I think the preoccupation with the wildlings coming is is a metaphor, right? The 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 Night's Watch are completely preoccupied preoccupied with the wildlings coming down the milk water. And what are we going to do when they get here? How are we going to attack them? Let's go take the battle to them. Totally preoccupied with the wildlings coming. Just like the reader has been preoccupied with things south of the wall for most of these two books up until now. And so this is George's way of refocusing the world back on what's going on north of the wall. And the metaphor is the Night's Watch themselves are also focusing on the wrong thing, just like the readers have been. The focus needs to be the others. The others are the threat, right? Yes. And I do like that it was done from Chet's POV because uh, the only look we've gotten at the Night's Watch from this whole uh, until now is from Jon Snow, right? And so to have it from someone else in the Night's Watch, especially someone like Chet, really gives us a different perspective on what it's like to be in the Night's Watch. Yeah. Um, and that in turn really kind of uh, sets up these feelings of anxiety for us about, like, how are these guys going to fight against someone like the others, right? Yeah. I, we, we got a little bit of a view of, of an outsider's perspective from Tyrion early on in Game of Thrones. But yeah, sure. from another member of the Night's Watch, it's, it's the only view we've gotten besides Jon's. And to be honest, occasionally I found myself agreeing with him. When he was talking mm-hmm. about... Oh, sure. When he was outlining... You know, what are we doing? We didn't find Benjen. We didn't find any of these guys we were looking for. What are we... And then we got distracted by the wildlings. Let's go back. I don't think he's crazy. I think he's, you know, he's a sick piece of shit, clearly. But he's not stupid. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit, I, I think, in some of the Akok chapters, that I think some mission creep is starting to set in oh, with yeah. J.R. Mormont. That's the only way that I can explain it. Um, it yeah. just seems to make so much sense to get back to the wall. You know, fight the wildlings, but do it behind your 700-foot wall, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I praise Chet, uh, Chet for being not stupid. But at the same time, if you're beyond the wall and your plan involves it not snowing, you haven't planned very well. <laughs> Good call, Pla- buddy. <laughs> planning something beyond the wall and not accounting for snow is kind of like planning something in the Sahara that requires ice with no refrigeration technology. Like, you're not planning very well. <laughs> Good point. Oh, and another thing about this whole mission creep, sorry to go back to it, we we have revealed that the the near a third of the Night's Watch's strength is now beyond the wall. That might have been mentioned before. Maybe I just forgot. 
So that's maybe like the Night's Watch has a thousand people in it right now. Maybe. Yeah, it's just shy of a thousand. Yeah. Like, doesn't that just seem really irresponsible of Mormont to engage them against thousands of wildlings, knowing that if potentially they get wiped out, that's 600 people left at the wall to defend that huge wall? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think I think it does seem irresponsible <clears throat> when you frame it that way. But when he framed it originally, it was as a ranging to go find information. Sure, and I agree. As, because because when they sent small parties out, they were being they were disappearing. Yeah. And you know, there's right a big difference between three or four and three hundred. Maybe they could have sent out fifty. I think we talked about that earlier. But as soon as it became more about fighting people instead of finding information. Yeah, maybe they should reconsider things. Yeah. Question for you guys. Besides the once-in-a-while raids that wildlings are coming over the wall to do, what's the reason for this enmity between wildlings and Night's Watch? Or do the Night's Watch kind of like use the wildlings to just validate their continued existence? You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's what a did- combination of many things. It's just like... Uh, there's just natural conflict um, because the protection of the wall is bred into every man who comes to the wall, and it's likely that the leaders of the of the Night's Watch use the Wilding sort of as like a catalyst to bind together yeah, the Black right. Brothers yeah. to give them mm-hmm. a common goal. It's like a pretty common management strategy. It's part of the definition of who they are, right? Yes. Yes, and for so long, the others haven't been a like a, a tangible uh-huh. threat. So another threat evolved. Yeah, so now my watch begins, blah, blah, blah. I'm the sword in the darkness. I'm the watcher on the walls. And the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. So this is all implying that they are guarding people against something. That are not we know. Men. We know fairly certainly at this point in the series that originally the Night's Watch was created to guard against something the more others. than men. Yeah. Probably the others. But then the others being dormant for so long meant that yeah, a, a new common enemy had to emerge and it was the wildlings. Right. And so I'm wondering if like they kind of labeled the wildlings the enemy just to have that or mm. if the wildlings actually did something to deserve that enmity. Because I totally agree with you on the need to have something to unify them and justify their existence and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. Besides the wildlings coming over the wall to raid, I I don't know of any big historical moments that really made them enemies. Anyway, it seems like an invented enemy. Yeah, yeah. Except maybe for Mance Raider would have a more like a a more recent reason for. Yeah, and there have been kings beyond the wall who've. Attacked mm-hmm. in numbers and stuff. But. Well, no. Also, just his very existence is sort of like sure a, a nose thumbing at the at the watch, like a yeah. uh, a turncloak black brother. I bite my thumb. Yeah, it definitely you. doesn't yeah. help things. No. All right, that's all I got. I think. Okay, nothing else. Nope. I'll just say this: Small Paul reminds me of oh. Lenny from Of Mice and Men. What do you want with a dead mouse, anyway? I was just petting it with the fingers while we was walking along. Yeah, well, you ain't petting no mice when you walk with me. Mm. Oh, I didn't think of that. 
seems like a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I request a new segment for the podcast? Oh, geez. Let's, Raising the game. We'll what call, is it? We'll call it Ed Said. <laughs> <laughs> or anytime Ed says something, Dolores Ed says something, it'll be called an Ed Said. Uh-huh. Like, like this gem when Sam uh, scores the target in archery practice, might have punctured a lung if he had a lung. Most trees don't, as a rule. <laughs> great stuff from it. Yeah. That's, a, that's an Ed Yeah, set. but you need more of an Eeyore voice. Might have punctured yeah. a lung if it had a lung. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Thank you, Ben. Nice. So good. <laughs> uh, speaking of segments, I did have a sock and susmapas for this uh, this section, if you guys want to take a second for it. Hagsmire, yes. where Chet is from. Uh, mm-hmm. If you get out your, ma- your maps there uh, and go to Seaguard, it's right on uh, just directly east of Iron Man's Bay, where the Iron Islands are. You can see Seaguard. And then you look down, there's Old Stones. Hagsmire is basically right in the middle of those two, right where the Blue Fork is there. The Blue Fork kind of, uh, the map doesn't show it here, but it kind of branches out into a lot of tributaries there. And it makes basically a big swampy area, which is what Chet's dad did. He waded into those swamps to get leeches. And uh, so that is where Chet is from. It's kind of like he's from Florida. Really delightful area. Yeah, 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 I'd love to live there. (laughs) Minus the retirees. (laughs) All right, Jamie? Jamie. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead it doesn't matter, reason, bottom line is it's the treason. At deepest side, could there be something on if you could see a heap or could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, such a good song. I already said it, but it's like the most probably like it's not poppy, but it's like very. Hmm. I don't know. It's very like, like it. It would be a song I would hear on the radio. I love it more than I the John song. Nice to say. Thank you. Yeah, more than the John song. The John song is about John. The Jamie song though is like about I don't Jamie. Know. Just with the lyrics are, are put together and sang. It's just, it's very catchy. I like it. Thank you. All your songs are catchy. Okay, I'm done. Okay, friends. You might remember from A Clash of Kings, the last we saw of Brave Sir Jamie was him piss-faced in River Run's dungeon, at the mercy of Catelyn Stark, about to get his neck shaved by Brienne's sword. But the gods are good. And it turns out that Catelyn snuck Jamie out of his cell and right out of River Run with his cousin, the handsome Cleos Frey, sending them back to King's Landing to appeal to the good faith of Tyrion Lannister and to letting Sansa and Arya go and be returned to Catelyn. Lucky Brienne has sworn to Catelyn to get Jamie to King's Landing alive, and goddammit, she is taking her oath seriously. So getting Jamie to King's Landing, getting the girls back to Catelyn, Brienne's job. But true to form, Jamie is not taking much of his narrow escape seriously, spending the majority of the trip down the Red Fork River in a stolen Tully boat, making fun of Brienne, tolerating his cousin, Cleos, and amusing himself with internal jabbery. We get a good look at the carnage of the Riverlands have suffered during the war, 
this merry little band passing through deserted villages, floating corpses, burning inns, and then they pass a big oak tree strung up with a whole bunch of hanged women. Brienne, maybe too good-hearted for her own good, pulls the boat over to bury the women's corpses. But while she's up in the oak tree cutting down the women's bodies, she spies a tully sail coming down from River Run, and they take off again. Uh, turns out it's an 18-oar galley bringing Robert Regeer, captain of the Tully Guard, to hunt them down. The galley gets close enough to them for Jamie to shout insults about Robin's balding problem and for the galley's archers to loose some arrows at them before the runaway boat enters a little like one-sided canyon around this island in the river. The description of how the river is cut through the land is not great. It's a little overcomplicated but basically Brienne jumps out of the boat has time to climb up a rocky cliff face and then drop a cow-sized boulder on Sir Robin's galley taking up two archers crushing a rower's leg and also breaking the galley's mast and putting a huge hole in its hull it's honestly it's like so well written and so exciting because Jamie is impressed as hell, and he barely even admits it to himself, but him watching Brienne drop boulders on a boat chasing them down the Red Fork River is, like, spectacularly exciting. His impressiveness with Brienne is proven when Sir Cleos, ever a gallant knight, takes the boat to pick up Brienne from where she's gracefully, those are Jamie's words, dived back into the river from top of the cliff. Uh, Jamie has an oar in hand and he knows what to do with it to smash Brienne's head in, which would free him from her taking him back to King's Landing and uh, making it much more likely for him to get away from any pursuing Tullys. It would also mean that uh, he wouldn't have to wear shackles on his uh, wrists and ankles, which he currently does. So it would be great if he could get away from Brienne, but instead he holds the oar out and drags her back into the boat. Yeah, he does call her a stupid wench for what she did, but also laughs at, at how well she did it. That's the end of the chapter. It was great. It was fantastic. It was our first Jamie chapter. It was. It was so great. It was great. a delight. Yeah, no. Um, and it was Jamie's first chapter, but we got a really like visceral account of his relationship with Cersei, which we've only really seen from outsiders' perspectives up until now. But basically, if you, if you look carefully, as I had to do to to study this chapter for our podcast, Cersei gets mentioned in literally every other paragraph. Um, like the first <laughs> paragraph opens with like uh, a simile to Cersei's fragrant fingers. The wind through his hair is as gentle and fragrant as Cersei's fingers. Fragrant fingers? What? What do our fingers smell like? Why do her fingers smell? Yeah, where's but she any- putting them? Yeah, like he he uh, wonders what Brienne would look like in Cersei's dress. Uh, what it was he he recalls what it was like to win an argument with Cersei by overpowering her with kisses. Just remarks to himself how much Cersei wouldn't like his new haircut because she, he would no longer look like her. Yeah, and we also get confirmation that Jamie has never slept with any other woman. And in fact, the only woman he's ever wanted is Cersei. Like, like, dude is crazy obsessed with his sister. 
crazy, right. way more than we ever could have guessed. I mean, we got a pretty good hint of it when he threw a kid out of a window for her. But now we know just how deep the crazy is. <laughs> yeah, that's what I took away from that chapter. I was like, damn it. Damn, man. Take it easy. <laughs> Anyways. Well, we've we've talked before, and it might have been in, in Davos After Dark that we talked about this, but we've talked before a little bit of how Jamie seems kind of almost like a follower, like he's, he's kind of following his sister's lead, and yeah, your analysis, Brooke, kind of leads a little bit back to that, right? She kind of runs him. She's running her game, and he's following. He's a he's a he's a puppy following along, right? Yeah, we we already know that it was it was her plan to have him in King's Landing that sort of like um, set him up to position himself to be asked to join the Kingsguard so that they could be together. The irony being that Tyrion or Tywin then took her back to Casserly Rock. But I I do want to make it clear that uh, Jamie's not like a mindless puppy who's just following blindly. Uh, I think if anything, this, I think this chapter proved that Jamie's got a lot of intelligence. I think he's following her because he's like you said, Brooke, he's whipped by, and he's madly in love with her. But um, I don't think that he's like a, a Cersei crony or something. Um, uh, I, I picked know. up a I picked up a lot of intelligence from Jamie here, and I think if he's following Cersei, it's because he's choosing to follow her because of his feelings for her. Oh, he's definitely like a Lannister. He is smart. He's very clever. He's clever. He... I don't know that he's smart. I don't know that he's. I don't know that he's like controlling his own destiny. Well, I feel yeah, like I, I feel like he's a piece being moved. I still feel that way even after this chapter. I disagree. Here's... I totally disagree. I, I agree with both of you, but it's his recklessness that cancels out his intelligence. And also his almost complete disregard for his own personal safety. Yeah, there's some of that. He's I, also I a complete a-hole. Disagree with that. <laughs> what, that's, what that. I, that's what I think is amazing about him, is he fights with his mind almost what? as much as he does with his sword. What are you talking about? I think about? he completely does. You know, he uses these taboo topics like sex and lady parts. It comes off as really uh, brash to us and stuff. He's done it to Catelyn, and now he's doing it to Brienne. But he disarms them that way. Um, and it comes oh, off, clever, again, as super yeah. jerky. But it, it's also, it's Jamie's way of not just disarming, but learning about his enemy. He's kind of like he's probing and testing. Because I think Brienne held up to Jamie's you know, japing really well, but it was his way of probing and kind of testing her defenses, kind of like Tywin did at the Battle of the Fords with his armies. And you, he learned a lot about her. Um, he, he, he notices her pretty eyes, uh, stuff that no one else has noticed about Brienne. And he, he makes that, that observation that her eyes are actually really pretty and he's able to conclude that she's determined she's not desperate mm. um one thing he says to cleos is he gives him that smile and then jamie thinks he doesn't say this he says men will read all sorts of things into a knowing smile if you let them there's stuff like that that there's a cleverness to jamie lannister that i didn't see before we got into his head in this pov that he actually has a thinking game that he goes about doing when he's 
when he's interacting with an enemy. It's not just, I'm going to swing my sword at him. He knows how to read him. He knows how to think outside the box. I love some of his little comments he made, like, crows need to eat as well when he's telling Brienne not <laughs> to cut down the, the people hanging. He, he comes at things from these different angles a lot. Uh, his, his talk with Catelyn about vows and how silly vows are and stuff. And I appreciate his ability to think outside the box and come at things from different angles. So is he like Tyrion? No, absolutely not. But there's this cleverness to Sarah Jamie that I think is more than just a blind follower of Cersei. It's actually one of the reasons I don't like Jamie. I feel like he has the brain and he doesn't choose to use it. He uses it he uses it for meaningless ends, like poking fun at people. And yeah, he's learning about her, but I don't know. I yeah, I was going to say, is it meaningless if he's learning about his enemy? Eh, I, That's probably what's, besides his skill with the sword, is what's kept him, you know, at the top of his game for so long, arguably. Yeah, I I don't know. I look at Jamie like, ugh, wasted potential. Just to go hmm. back to your original point, Matt, I think you're right. Jamie is more observant than most people are going to give him credit for. Mm-hmm. And he does have... Uh, his fair share of cunning. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the observations he makes about Brienne, it's almost like he, he tempers all of this admiration he has for her, which is there if you read it, mm-hmm. with insulting her both in his head by repeating to himself over and over again how ugly she is, also right. calling her, her wench, you know, admitting to himself that she's too easy of a target, that he, he won't like unleash oh, yeah. the full the full... Um, like arsenal of Lannister insults at her. He's he's but, no doubt arrogant yeah. as as can be. Maybe the most arrogant man in all of Westeros. But yeah, but then but on the other hand, he's like commenting on her tenacity. Right. Um. He admires her experience with navigating water, her strength at the oars, and that that remark about her eyes and how she had that calm determination, like a real warrior. He was like, yeah, that's what I like to see. Mm-hmm. And also at the very end, the way that she means to keep her oath to get him to King's Landing. He's like, whoa, this is great. That's amazing. That never happens. He knows, you know, how crappy knights are as well. Yeah, so. we're seeing that he's he's a complicated character. There's some stuff to Jamie that is not just on the surface. So. Yeah, and also his his POV is doing a really great job of, like, laying out his complications, if that makes sense. Sure. Totally. But super fascinating to read. I think his greatest complications, though, is that he's allowed himself to be controlled his whole life. That's honestly what I think. And mm. I, I don't know. I think he simplifies a lot of things. I mean, let, let's, I think he does, too. There's two examples here that I want to point out about what a monster this guy is. And I'm not saying he's not complicated. I'm not saying he doesn't have some good qualities. He's certainly witty and clever and observate, observative. But, like... First of all, he justifies throwing a kid out a window with blue balls. Mm-hmm. Inexcusable. I agree. And he laughs at drowning men. At best, when mm-hmm. you see men drowning, you should be like, that's an enemy I don't have to deal with. Laughing? I think we talked about something similar before on this podcast. Laughing at people dying is a very caustic reaction. It's, it's not good, man. Poorly yeah. done. But if your business is killing people and business is good, that's going to be your attitude, right? 
I think his sensitivity to those types of things like death and stuff have been fairly dulled. But I agree. Pushing a kid out of a window, inexcusable. And he even admits to, to Catelyn, <laughs> I meant for him to die. She's like, why would you do that? Did you think you wouldn't? You know, he's like, no, I pushed him out and I meant for him to die. Good on him for that, for honesty. There. But, he also admits that he regrets it because it's been very inconvenient. Yeah, I shouldn't have pushed a kid out a window because he's a kid yeah. and he's got a whole life ahead of him and he's innocent. It's like, no, it was just a pain in my butt. Cersei was yeah. on me. Yeah. Everyone was on me. Oh, it it comes down to I shouldn't have pushed a kid out a window because we got caught and he didn't die. Right. Yep, exactly. <laughs> No, no. I'm not holding him up as this Jesus Christ character in the books, but, uh, you know, I learned more about him than before. So I will say this about him, because the most negative things that say that, that are said about him are about his, his lack of honor. He stabbed a king in the back. He's the king slayer. But in, the, in, this, in this chapter, he talks about how he got drunk in the cell, and he forgets most of the escape, right? He's for, the the... the the alcohol made him forget or whatever. He slept through some of it. Like, he forgets a lot of the escape. But he remembers every single vow he sweared. Swore. <laughs> right? Every single vow he swore, he remembers. And that's that's important. It means that the vows mean something to him. He remembers them. And I noticed that he never... Um... He never had this thought in his head of, <laughs> I pulled the fleece over Catelyn's head. Um, it appears yeah, yeah. that he's planning on going through with what he said he was going to do. And obviously Brienne's kind of pulling the strings here. But um, yeah, I thought that was very telling. And I agree with you, Scott. And one of the most telling things of that whole chapter is th- what Brooke pointed out in her summary of he could have easily conked out Brienne with that or she was completely uh, he was completely in control at that point and he pulled her in something about well you can take you can read that in two ways either he thought because he was chained because he had the idiot cleos with him it best served him to keep her around because he was in a weird spot still still even by getting rid of her he'd be in a weird spot or he saw something in brian that intrigued him enough to keep her around for a while like a cat with a mouse I'm I'm leaning towards the latter. I don't know if I'd agree with the cat and the mouse thing, but towards the latter, uh, just because we are in his head, and he doesn't really know why he did it either. <laughs> he just kind of did it. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, anything else on Jamie? Should we move on to Cat? Go. Let's go, Cat. That's you oh, I do want to just point it out. Sure. Jamie, uh, Brienne called Jamie Kingslayer first. We get on his case for Connor Wench all the time. She dropped the name calling. She started the name calling. Just want to say that. Well, that's a common term for him. Everyone calls him that. But not, he's he not everyone like calls it. her wench. Everyone calls him Kingslayer. It's it's a common yeah, term for him. He's he's been laughed. She's been laughed at all her life. He still shouldn't have done it. But I just want to point out that Brienne was dishing it out too. Brienne was using a pseudonym for him. It was pretty spiteful. What? Everyone calls him that. It's not like she's the first one yeah, to do it it's, in the series. Well, it's also just and facts. it's awfully spiteful. I don't think it's spiteful at all. It's just fact. It's what everyone calls him. It's an it's a known part of his personality. All right. Uh, also, it's uh, as much as hard as I've been on Jamie, and I will be hard on him uh, throughout. It's worth having his POV simply because we get the phrase "the war for Cersei's cunt." <laughs> yeah, you missed an opportunity on naming this episode there. 
<laughs> yeah, the name wasn't my strongest. Let's move on. Gowan? <laughs> oh, words will cut you like valerian steel to a hair. She can't love Jon Snow, but she's sure to let you know where she stands. A devoted mother who married the brother of a dead fiancé. She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Stark. Catelyn. Awkward. That's how I describe the situation we find ourselves in as the chapter opens. Uh, Catelyn, who we now know let Jamie Lannister escape in return for brokering the release of her daughters, is having a sit-down with Desmond Grell, River Run's master at arms, and Eutherides Wayne one of Gurm's more creative names, who's River Run Steward. Both men love Catelyn, known her since she was but a wee lass, and are convinced that she did what she did out of grief-induced madness after hearing of the death of Bran and Rickon. So having to decide on her punishment for letting a prize hostage like Jamie go free is at least difficult. Um, you'd think that in a place like the Seven Kingdoms, death wouldn't be an unfair punishment for something like this. But it's obvious that Grell and Wayne aren't going that direction, even admitting that they wouldn't even dream of putting her in chains. So in the end, Catelyn fully and honestly admits her wrongdoing, and they all kind of decide together that Cat will be confined to her father's chambers until Edmure returns, and then they'll kind of go from there. Uh, much of the rest of the chapter is spent in somewhat droll, but at least tender moments of Kat attempting to spend meaningful time with her ailing father. Um, but he, for the most part, is mentally out of it. He's kept on essentially an IV of milk of the poppy because of the intense pain he's always in. Um, and that same medicine kind of takes him out of the real world. He barely acknowledges Kat's presence, doesn't seem to recognize her. <clears throat> muttering mostly the word tansy and talking almost incoherently about blood, having babies, and apologizing, pleading for forgiveness. Kat is, uh, needless to say, troubled by this and wonders who tansy could be. Was it some slam piece Hoster had and sired a bastard off of? Um, was it a nickname for Lysa, who Kat suspects may have had a miscarriage early in her marriage? Um, a number of things. And as this mystery occupies her thoughts, Maester Vyman, the maester at River Run, enters to take care of Hoster, and Catelyn's able to convince him to fill her in on a few of the happenings around the Seven Kingdoms, uh, specifically about her son, Rob, who it turns out took a minor wound while taking a place called the Crag. I think we talked about this. Best name in all of Westeros, the Crag. It's a smaller castle in the Westerlands who swears allegiance to the Lannisters. Um, Vyman insists that Rob's wounds are minor and that he'll be back in action soon. Um, then sometime after, Edmure returns from the field of battle where he was defending the Riverlands from, from uh, Lannister forces. And he's exuberant, telling Cat of his triumph over Tywin and his cronies. But he is uh, quite disappointed after hearing the news about Stannis' defeat at King's Landing. Um, the situation, of course, seems more dire, as we know now that, the, that Highgarden, the Tyrells, and Dorne, who had previously stayed neutral, now apparently side with the Iron Throne and Jamie Lannister's on the loose. God, what were you thinking, sis? 
despite Kat's assurances that Jamie and Brienne will do what was promised, Edmure is having none of it. He's already dispatched ravens to Lord Bolton at Harrenhal, commanding him to get his rearing gear and intercept Jamie before he can fully get away. And so now Catelyn and Edmure find themselves at odds. Edmure wants Jamie back for obvious strategic purposes, and Catelyn wants her daughters back and knows that's not likely to happen if Jamie is recaptured and returned to River, River Run. So basically, in the end, things just continue to not go Catelyn's way. And that's the end of the chapter. And I would, I would jump in and say, not only is it not likely to go Cat's way with, with her daughters, by him, by, by, by Edmure saying that he's escaped... He's almost guaranteed it can't go Cat's way. Right. And she points that out. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he, it's supposed to be a transfer of prisoners. And if he escapes and gets free, they're not going to give anything back. Right. Nuts. She was pissed at it, Mir. Yeah. She was not pleased. I don't blame him one bit. Him? Of course he's going to try to get Jamie back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't blame either of them, really. Um, right. Yeah. I don't blame him for sure. Yeah. I mean, I would be as crazy as Catelyn about getting my kids back. But Edmure, that's the smart thing to do. It's the only thing he can do. If he doesn't try to get Jamie back, he's implicit on the, on the treason, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. He had no choice. Complicit. Excuse me. It's a terrible situation. Yeah. Well, uh, Tansy will probably talk about in Davos after dark. Yeah. Um, so hang around if you want to talk about that. I'll just say regarding that, just real quick, that maester is full of shit, man. Mm-hmm. A la Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> that guy knows something. His answers sure. to her were like, oh, yeah, maybe this one chick one time. I don't know. I'm leaving now. <laughs> I gotta go. That dude I was really hiding can't something, be talking for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Mm. I, I really don't have a ton to talk about with this chapter, you guys. Well, let me say uh, this about Kat. So I, I actually love this from Kat. The uh, the stuff where she's with uh, Eutherides Wayne, which I agree, Matt, what a crazy name. Eutherides Wayne. Uh, where she's talking to him and, and, and Desmond, and she's just saying, hey, I did this. I accept my punishment. Do whatever you want. They refuse to chain her up. But she's right. basically willing to accept whatever punishment comes along with it, right? She's She's yeah. like, I did this. I'm not repentant. I did what I did. Punish me as you need to. Um, not repentant, but understanding. And yep. I love you guys got to do what you got to do. Yeah. I get it. I love it. It's very yeah. rational. It's the way I view speeding tickets. Right. <laughs> I speed everywhere I go. And I'm just okay with the fact that I'm going to get a speeding tickets occasionally. When cops pull me over, I say, thank you, sir, for doing your job. I will take the speeding ticket and I will pay it. And I don't, I, there's no repentance. There's no anger. There's no frustration. Nothing. That's just the way it is. I will continue speeding? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I will continue speeding, and I will get caught occasionally, and that's the way it will go. And (laughs) same thing with Catelyn here. She's not repentant at all. She did what she did. She still wants to succeed. Punish me how you need to punish me. I love it. Mm -hmm. Until the fact that later later in the chapter, she's actually breaking that and, like, pestering the maester for news when she agreed she wouldn't pester, right? She's kind of not following her own rules, but... Whatever. Minor yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, it was very civil. Yeah. They're just like a like a better class of people for working that out. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Uh, 
It was an awkward situation. Yeah, indeed. These guys are like, what do we do to her? She's known her since she was a little girl. She's our Lord's daughter. King's yeah. mother. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Kat kind of what? at the end of the chapter spends some time trying to like, I don't know, not justify, but explain Lysa's behavior. Kind of like she kind of, it seems like she kind of blames John Aaron for it. Like he wasn't there for her in the way that she needed. You guys, you guys on board with that? Yeah, and and she kind of gets on Hoster too for arranging the whole wedding. Mm-hmm. She she has like this epiphany of oh, they arranged the marriage so that the you know the forces of the Vale and the forces of River Run could hook up. And like she, so it was this big thing. I I don't know. I kind of seem uh, that might be obvious, but maybe Seems that's from me reading from a, to me. a one thousand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, Maybe it's because I'm reading it from this outsider's perspective, but she had like this big epiphany about it. I was like, well, oh, seems like that was kind of obvious. But one thing I do like that George does here with Hoster seems like Hoster was, you know, in his heyday, was a pretty powerful guy, right? Yeah. Well, he wasn't leading the Seven Kingdoms or anything, but he was uh, the main guy of a major house and he seemed like he was a good leader and everything. But it's this real life thing of, you know, in, in, in other stories, you might see a guy like that kind of going out with some sort of bang, right? He lived gloriously, and now he's going to die gloriously. And you know what? This is just real life. And Hoster, yeah. I mean, unless he was poisoned or something, which there's probably some theory out there about that. But from what we can see right now, Hoster just got old. He just got old. And he's just going to die because he's old. And uh, I think that's interesting that George, you know what I mean? He kind of has these real life moments of not everyone goes out gloriously. True. Agreed. Yeah. Oh I my god, you guys, this chapter is so boring. Because he's not dead yet. Yeah, I got nothing else to say. Uh, it wasn't a great chapter. <laughs> Falling asleep. Can we move on? We can move yes. on. Awesome. Are you one? Let's do it. Aria, on the foot, pulse face, sticking with the pointy end. Aria, on the foot, pulse face, sticking with the pointy end. Okay, so we meet back up with Arya as her and her loyal pals, Gendry and Hot Pie, are headed north from Harrenhal, having stolen three horses, swords, and bread in their escape. Arya also killed one guard and correctly surmises that while Roose Bolton won't come after an apprentice blacksmith, a baker boy, and a cupbearer himself, he'll likely send men after them because the theft and the murder. Either he'll send his own guards or maybe some of Vargo Hote's bloody mummers. Arya also got away with a map from Ruse Bolton's uh, offices and is attempting to navigate the three of them north to River Run. There she'll, she plans to reveal her identity to her grandfather and maybe even find Catelyn or Rob. She could have revealed herself to Roos, who is one of Rob's bannermen, but she has never trusted Roos Bolton. And whether that's for good or bad, here they are looking for some other more trustworthy uh, men. So she's taken a chance on getting to tell Lance and begging help from other men loyal to Rob. And man, a lot of this chapter is just them traveling through the woods uh, traveling through burned villages, Arya pretending she knows what she's doing with this map, uh, 
Gendry being stoic, uh, Hot Pie being a little bit of a brat. I mean, he's just being a normal kid complaining about riding on a horse when he's not a, a horseman in the rain. Yeah, just uh, Hot Pie being kind of bratty. It's entertaining, but it's not Brienne dropping rocks on fools entertaining. That is, until they finally break to sleep and Arya dreams of four bloody mummers she's seen before. A Lysini, an axeman from Ib, a Dothraki horse lord, and a Dornishman. They're in the woods too, riding in the rain, just like Arya and her squad, and she knows with certainty that the bloody mummers are coming after them. But she's not afraid, because in her dreams, she's a wolf, hunting the mummers with her pack, smelling their fear, ripping arms from bodies, and just loving that shit. And yeah, that's the end of the chapter. She's a wolf, she's a wolf pulling apart these bloody mummers who are tracking them through the forest. Oh, those last couple pages totally made the rest of the chapter worth yeah. it. Yeah, because the rest of the chapter was yeah. brutal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, can we all agree here that Arya was dreaming of Nymeria? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not dreaming. 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 Not dreaming. She was warging. Yes. Right? Definitely. Not, I don't uh, know I that she knows it. I don't know that she... I mean, yeah, it's wolf dreams is what they call it, I suppose. But I don't think... I don't know that she knows it. I don't know if she knows it's real, real. I'm not sure she's put that all together yet. No, I don't think she has either. Yeah, but it's... <clears throat> yeah, I think it's definitely Nymeria. No, but it's scary, right? So, because as they were on their way toward River Run, crossing all these rivers and stuff, at one point she looked across the valley and saw some dark shadows moving in the forest, and she yeah. thought it was the men following her, but it turned out it was just wolves. She might have actually seen Nymeria at that point. Like, they were so close to each other. Not only did she oh, see her, she communicated with her. She howled yeah, they with howled the wolves, and they other. howled back. So great. Yeah, it was so awesome. Great. Oh, and, and you have to think, like, what would have happened if Nymeria hadn't had their backs? Yeah. I, ah. I, I actually think, I don't know, I don't know how true it is. I actually think Nymeria heard the howl, knew it was Arya, and said, oh, I'm going to save her. The wolves look after their kids. We've talked about this before. Nymeria actively saved them. She wasn't just out looking for some meat. Right. She knew it was Arya, and she saved her. Yep. Awesome! So great. Totally agree. So them being in the like general vicinity of each other, was that also a coincidence, or was Nymeria like, on her way to Arya? We know that the wolves were in the Riverlands, yep. but the Riverlands are a big place. They're big. And big. Like As evidenced saying, by Arya. To further your point, yeah, to further your point, Brooke, were they in the Riverlands because Arya was also in the Riverlands? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting topic. Let's go ahead and say yes. Let's go ahead and say <laughs> yes. I want so bad to say yes. <laughs> I think I'm changing my mind. I think I'm changing again. I think Nymeria is my favorite wolf. It isn't flip-flopping, guys. It's altering an opinion based on new information. Who was it before, Shaggy Dog? I don't know. I flip it all the time. Okay, fine, it's flip-flopping. <laughs> you don't you don't have to yeah, it's fine. It's it's cool. You can flip flop. I, I think probably it's Shaggy Dog. Or Nymeria. I think I'm a go- I think I'm a ghost girl. I do love Nymeria. She's so badass, but Man, I don't think I have a favorite. Lady? Yeah. Lady. So the last the couple pages are clearly the coolest part of this chapter. We we I think we agree on that. But I think there's some interesting stuff about Arya characteristically developmentally in this chapter too. Totally. Oh for it, man. please regale us because I didn't pick up any of that. Are are you mocking me or do you really want me to do it? 
<coughs> no, I, I want you to see if I want to see if it matches up with some of my observations. Well, for, first is uh, I, I think it's I think it's three things. First, there are just some people that are born for this risky thrill type shit, right? They're not Jedi because adventure. Because I've been Jedi creators, not these things. But Arya <laughs> is one of these people. She only feels really alive when she's doing stuff like this. When she's, you know, kind of on the edge of, of her seat and, and, and escaping or, or doing something daring. This is when she feels alive. Uh, and there, there are people like that. The second thing is th- that I noted is, is that she, she has a very strong sense of family, of, of a pack, like a wolf. And it goes back a little bit to one of Ned's messages to her about, about being in a pack and that that being the most important thing. And he was referring to her family, but I think she's she's replaced that with a worthy replacement of these friends being her family and her pack. And, you know, uh, Hot Pie gets chased away and he's bounding through the trees on a horse he can't control and she goes after him, right? And she's not, she, she admits several times that she thinks she could go faster without them, and yet she won't. That's her pack. She's not going to leave them behind, right? So that's that's the second thing. And the third thing is that she has hope. She really believes she's going to make it. She she hasn't her hope has not been crushed. All that Riverland stuff, seeing the the dismay of the people, the 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 soul crushing element of being held captive, all of that, she's come out of it and she still has hope. She still she 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 True. remarks about how um she doesn't say if she'll ever sleep in a warm bed again. She says, I wonder how long it will be before I sleep in a warm bed again. She believes she's gonna make it out of this. I think that's it. Yeah, I think there's that's that determination. I picked up on some of that too, not all of it. Um, so very good. Uh, I noticed just these similarities, and you pointed some of them out, of Arya taking on characteristics almost of a wolf, that pack mentality that you mentioned. She's going to stick with, uh, she mentioned how it would be easier to go on alone, but she's going to stick with Gendry and Hot Pie because they're her pack. I think she even says that, they're my pack. There's that calm and coolness to her. Uh, like a, it reminds me of a wolf. Uh, you remember her just eating that apple, and I think that's quite the metaphor of her pulling that apple off the hanging tree and eating it, worms and all. Death uh, is becoming a little more second nature to her. Not that, and that's kind of wolfish. Not that wolves are killing machines, but they aren't exactly bound by morals or whatever. They kill to stay alive, right? And that's kind of what uh, she's kind of doing. She talks about how after they'd escaped Hall and she'd killed that guy, she felt calmer than she ever had. Um, and I don't know. She mentions again her connection to Jon Snow, and I would say he's kind of wolfish too, and that could be a reason for the connection there. Yeah, that was cute, her and, her and Gendry saying no at the same time. Reminding her of her brother. Adorbs. Yeah. Adorable. Johnny John. <laughs> I hope I'm not stepping on some toes by doing a Professor Scad, but I looked up the whole moss growing on the north side thing. Oh, did you? I did. And, uh... It was the south side, said, by the way, the not nor- the north. Was it? I think she says that the moss was on the south. I'll look it up real quick. Go ahead, though, with your with your thing. Well, and it's the... Yeah, yeah thanks for paying more attention. Um, the outcome is the same. They said whether or not moss grows predominantly on the north side of a tree depends on where you live, basically. Uh, there's a tendency for moss to grow on the northern side of a tree in the southern hemisphere, in the northern hemisphere. But if you're in the southern hemisphere, moss has more of a tendency to grow on the south side of a tree. So it de- 
where you are. It's not that simple. Um, it's it's it has more to do with which side of the tree has the most shade at any given time. That's where moss is going to grow, obviously. So shady and damp is best for most mosses. It's tough. So arguably, go. if moss is growing on the south side of trees in Westeros, they could be on the southern hemisphere of this planet. Right. That's kind of cool to know. Like, the map is upside down sort of thing. True. Like, the theory of, like, not the theory, but the idea of early cartographers, if they had just not given precedence to Western civilization, then our, all of our maps would be upside down. Look at you all smart and stuff. <laughs> I'm just poorly re- repeating things that I've heard third person, so. <laughs> I did find the little passage that just confirms, uh, but there's no sun. How do you know uh, which way they're going? From the moss. See how it grows mostly on one side of the trees? That's south. Ah. Cool. So All according right. to what I read, they have a tendency to be on the southern hemisphere. So again, the pl- <laughs> to Brooks' planetary observation. <laughs> Right, well, guys, we... we really we cracked this one. Yeah, let's move <laughs> yeah. on. We're on a high I think note. we've we've made some pretty groundbreaking discoveries tonight. Should we move on to Tyrion? <laughs> yeah, Tyrion, cue music. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion Lannister, rimp if you please. Tyrion wakes, weak. In a fever, discombobulated, and Scad goes through flashbacks of the last dreaming waking fiasco of a chapter we had to deal with for Tyrion. But we were saved that misery with the appearance of Braun, a fresh-looking Braun, trim, shampooed, with a new coat of arms, his own, a flaming green chain. Cool, very sexy. Mm. Who knew Braun was sexy? Matt oh, did. Matt did. Fair. Uh, Tywin had him dubbed, not Tyrion, but Tywin had him dubbed shortly after the battle, stealing thunder that Tyrion had been secretly storing away for quite a while. Uh, Bronn fills Tyrion in on, on a little bit of news as he visits him in his bed. Uh, the Hound has disappeared. Most of the stuff we kind of already know. The Hound has disappeared. Uh, Jaslyn Bywater dead by his own men during the battle. Adam Marbrand now leads the Gold Cloaks. His clansmen are fled, uh, or chased off, or settled in good, in for good, in the Kingswood. Uh, Alayaya, the the uh, whore who pretended to be his whore uh, and stayed silent for him, was stripped and scourged, whipped and thrown out of the city. Tommen is back in Cersei's care. Long story short, every nook of power or alliance or scheme, everything he had built up since arriving in the city has been undone by Tywin and Cersei in the few weeks that he's been incapacitated. There's a little bit of news from the war, too. Stannis, he learns, has survived. Mystery surrounds the reemergence of Renly in the armor, at least among the common folk in the in the uh, the shops. Uh, some of Rob's men are heading toward Duskendale, uh, and Marjorie uh, is on her way to King's Landing, uh, to a city, King's Landing, that is already in love with their new queen, even though they haven't even seen her yet. So Tyrion, hearing all this, he's just he's wrecked. He's resolved to get out of bed and make an appearance and fight for what he thinks he has earned. But it's easier said than done. He's still extremely weak, uh, and he makes his way to his father's room slowly, gingerly, and with a lot of help from Braun and Pod. They run into Marbrand on the steps. He indicates that the Gold Cloak's main duty now is to find young Tyrek Lannister. A uh, quick reminder to our re- our listeners, uh, Tyrek Lannister uh, is a cousin who was lost in the riding. Actually, I think it's a nephew of Tyrion's. 
he was lost in the rioting uh, that happened. Um, Braun solves the mystery for Adam, though. Uh, very simple. He's feeding the worms. Tyrick is dead, according to Braun. Adam didn't take that too kindly, though. So, Tyrion makes it to Tywin's chambers. They trade jabs about Tyrion's sickbed, his living accommodations, the upcoming wedding uh, for Joffrey and Marjorie. But Tywin is busy ruling the realm, and after briefing Tyrion on the plans for Sannis and Robbie, urges Ty- Tyrion to get to the point. Tyrion asks first for gratitude, to which Tywin chides him that mummers and monkeys require applause. Tyrion is given credit for the chain, which was definitely his idea, and the Dornish alliance, but nothing more. But even on that Dornish alliance, on that stroke, he's even got some negatives. Dorn now holds Marcella, basically a hostage, and is coming to claim what Tywin says is is revenge, what Tyrion says is justice. Um, basically, they want Gregor Clegane's blood, and Tywin is a little bit loath to give up that. You know, Gregor's been a a great beast for him to, to accomplish a lot of nasty tasks. So, again, Tywin kind of tries to push him out, but Tyrion hesitates and makes one of the boldest requests he could ever make. Though, in another family, maybe it would be standard practice, he wants his birthright. He wants Casterly Rock. The reader may remember that Jamie Lannister, who would normally uh, be uh, awarded Casterly Rock, Casterly Rock as his birthright, is part of the Guard and has forfeited his rights to, that, to Casterly Rock. So, what Tyrion wants, really, is recognition from Tywin that he is his son, and everything that goes with it, including Castle Rock. Tywin won't have it, though. He berates Tyrion for killing his mother, and a million other things that Tywin finds distasteful, including that he wouldn't allow Castle Rock to become Tyrion's whorehouse. A light goes on for Tyrion here. He knows that Tywin was the one that had Aliaia whipped, a fact that Tywin doesn't even run from. Instead, he just turns the tables back on Tyrion, You made threats against my grandsons? Tyrion retreats, saying he didn't mean it, but he's lost this fight. Tywin dismisses him, threatening himself that if he finds Tyrion shaming the Lannister house with another whore, he will hang her. And that is how the chapter ends. Good rundown on, like, Tyrion's crumbling world. It is crumbling. This was... We talked about this a little bit, uh, well, quite a bit, actually, I think, in... in, uh, Clash of Kings, just how Tyrion has kind of built up this empire and is just kind of running everything, really. And in the few short weeks that he's he's out of it, it's just come crumbling down around him. One thing about Tywin, to that point, is he's thorough, right? When he comes in and establishes himself, he does it thoroughly. I was reminded of, of course, what was done following Robert Baratheon's death. And I know Tywin wasn't present, but... I mean, the Lannisters came in and just established themselves, remember, on a small castle and everything. And <laughs> Tywin definitely does that here. I mean, buying people off, appointing people to strategic positions, breaking up former alliances. He just gets in and does it down to the very last detail, even knighting Braun. Yeah. That's yeah. Kind of- And it shouldn't be a huge surprise either. If you remember, in Game of Thrones... It was, I think it was Tyrion's last chapter in A Game of Thrones. Tywin sends him there and says, you will go there to rule. But mm-hmm. Tywin is the Hand. Tywin was named Hand when, right. at, at Baratheon's death. And he's really just holding the spot warm for him. So none of this should be a huge surprise, really. Tywin's coming in to claim the position right. he was named. 
No, but really the insult is in the lack of appreciation and gratitude. Absolutely. And yeah. and and just the disrespect for everything that Tyrion did for the Lannisters and uh, keeping his father's spot really nice and toasty. Do you think nobody yeah, gave says... Tyrion credit to Tywin when they told him how it went down? Or do you think Tywin's just actively denying it? Tywin's just actively de- denying it. He has so much personal prejudice against Tyrion. I mean, he can't help but, but admit that Tyrion is smart and capable, obviously why he put them in, in this temporary hand position. But now that he has to be in like the same general area as as Tyrion, and also now that Tyrion is possibly not going to survive the wounds that he received in the Battle of the Blackwater, yeah, just... It, it, it's every everything that Tyrion did is he served his purpose and now it's done. Yeah, yeah. I, I think prejudice is a good a good descriptor of it, Brooke. And and the and the thing about prejudice is is that when you're when you're prejudiced against someone, you've got to be like prejudiced all the way, right? Or else your prejudice is unjustified. Like you can't begrudgingly admit that someone who you don't like is good at something because then it might seem unfair that you don't like them. You've got to, you've got to dislike them all the way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's, that's how Tywin is with Tyrion. Yeah. thought you were going to say something. No, it was along those lines, I think. Um, mm. But I, I, I will add <clears throat> just on the Tyrion Tywin dynamic, we see Tyrion through the first two books, get the better of everyone that he comes comes to interact with. Everyone that he deals with, he gets he gets over them somehow, right? He gets what he wants, he dominates the conversation, he gets his way in the end. Except for twice. And both of those times are with Tywin. I don't know whether it's the familial respect the father kind of mental block he has, but he cannot get around this guy. He he dominates everybody except Tywin. Oh, you're totally right. Like he brought up the him being heir to Casterly Rock, even though he knew what the outcome was going to be, but he couldn't help himself. Yeah, like poking that wound. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Thus, the title, yeah, like... by the way, Lannisters of the Bald and <laughs> Rockless. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's Lance pretty good. Man. We didn't we we didn't I give you him, credit. Tyrion says, you know, what does he want? He wants more than Tywin could ever give him. And that's that love, acceptance, appreciation, to feel valued, any of the above. And, uh, yeah, Tywin's not going to crack and give him that. Yeah, he says says in there, I'll give you you a reward, something that I deem is is fit. Something that I deem is fit, yeah. And... (laughs) But it's it's not a it's not a uh, it's it's just not the the thing a father says to a son. You don't say something like that to your son. It's ridiculous, especially yeah, yeah. after all he's been through, yeah. right? Man. Especially after like like my kid, you know, um, my my older boy Luke. The other day, he uh, he pulled some weeds in my parents' yard just of his own volition. Can he I just smoke went out them? and did it. Oh, you may. I'll get them to you asap. Um, and he got really upset when my mom paid him like $2 because he wanted more like $5. And uh, in that kind of situation, it's like, no, you'll get what you get, buddy. Like, this, you pulled like seven weeds. You should be thankful for those $2. And uh, 
But no, this but he is didn't completely build different a chain with what and Tyrion's it across been the through. Bay. Yeah, and now he's sitting there in front of his father with a slashed up face and can, can't even. He's wearing a bathrobe because he can't even get himself dressed. Like, yeah, I agree with you. It's not something you say. Yeah. You have to wonder if Tywin gave Tyrion even just a tiny little fraction of of love or even acceptance, just a little bit of acceptance. If Tyrion mm-hmm. would thrive, or if he would be less fail. effective. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. That's what drives him. Uh-huh. We talked about this uh, clear back when we were reading Game of Thrones. What drives Tyrion is the need to, in the end, it's a very simple need, impress his father. Huh. I think the impossible. And, yeah, and I I agree with you there. I don't because, know if he'd be quite this, as effective. This, of, of anything, would have gotten him that. And he was banking on yeah, it, too. Right. And whew, what a disappointment. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an expectation management situation. He, he knew what a good job he was doing, getting the city ready, defending it, even riding out himself to defend it against yeah. fully decorated knights. He, he, did, he knows what good a job he did, and so his expectation is... Reward and admiration. He even dreamt yeah. it. Yeah, his expectation is five dollars for, for doing much more than pulling weeds. But he even dreams about it in that last chapter of uh, Clash of Kings. He dreams about about a ceremony where he's celebrated. Right? Mm-hmm. He thinks it's. He fully expects it's going to happen. And when you don't get what you expect, it, it makes it that much worse. So it's not right. just that he's being insulted. It's that he's being insulted. And he expected something that was exactly the opposite. Mm. And he here's the, here's the worst part. Sick. It wasn't a prideful expectation. It was a reasonable yeah. expectation. Yes. He literally <laughs> saved totally. the city. Yes. Yeah. And Tywin says it great. It was seven weeds and expect five bucks. It was. Yeah. 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 It, it was, and, and Tywin says it great. I, I, I'll misquote it exactly, but it's something along the lines of, you saved the city. Really? Everyone I talk to says that I did it. And also red wine and a few others accounted themselves well also, right? Like, yeah. he, he's just, I don't know what, that's, that's what I meant earlier when I said, is he just denying it? Or is he just believing what he's been told, which is what everyone really believes? Because I think there's a prejudice yeah. not just from him, but everyone in the city against Tyrion. Yeah, to that point, Tyrion never managed uh, his... So, social position very well like yeah. he was doing all these things for the benefit of the city and he kind of never made that known really like he just did it right and he he yeah sometimes if you're doing something big and you want people to notice you've yeah. got to kind of brag a little bit you know yeah. and to Tyrion's credit he never did uh you know now the Tyrells are walking around with flowers on their shirts and mm-hmm. giving people food and stuff. So they're masters they're of actually, selling themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, you know, that's pompous and everything, but from a PR perspective, it's brilliant. And it, the yeah. results are showing the the small folk love them and they should be loving Tyrion because of everything he did. You mentioned that so, back in the clash of Kings credit to you. you. You made that PR comment back then The Tyrion doesn't do a good job of trumpeting his victories. Right, mm-hmm. I remember you saying that in one of those chapters back then. Yeah, but you know, just, some it, things he can't do, like the the wildfire. He can't go say, "Hey, yeah. look, everybody, I'm cashing all this wildfire," because obviously that's strategic battle stuff. They don't want to, you know, leak out. But you know, I think he he probably could have paid a little more attention to 
to that. That kind of that kind of shores up our point, though. He wasn't looking for attention or for for mm-hmm. um, he wasn't self-aggrandizing. Mm-hmm. He just right. wanted to impress Tywin, and that would include totally. not point. being big. I think he also just yeah. wanted to do I'm the job. About it. Yeah, I, I think yeah. he took right. pride in doing the job too. I, I I think he really did. I I agree with you completely. It didn't even enter his thoughts because he's he's finding a sense of fulfillment in what he's doing and it doesn't matter what the townspeople think or the small folk think and stuff so it, yeah i totally agree with you guys it did jump out at but, him occasionally i remember there's a chapter in there in, right. in clash of kings where he's like they call me a demon when i'm doing all this cool stuff they should be celebrating me it jumped out of him right. a few times but he, but he do just kind of brushed it aside yeah. right it was kind of the scat ind- indignation card right <laughs> <laughs> yep so one thing I do love about Tyrion is he's so calculating and stuff, but then as it you you pointed out in your summary, Scad, when he is about to leave and he even says he took one step and he realized after what they Grim writes it brilliantly, yeah. he should have taken a second and a third, but he turns around and he just says it. And uh that's one little just this this he can't uh, help himself. I don't know this funny thing about Tyrion, who's so calculating and smart. But there's these moments where he just can't help himself, you his know. Mouth. And I love yeah. that about him. I love that about him. His mouth is his um, saving grace, and his uh, <laughs> the path to his eternal damnation as well. His mouth is going to kill indeed. him or save him. Did you guys, you guys ever see that movie? Uh, we we bought a zoo or we have a zoo, something like that. Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah. I've seen most of it. I've pieced it together on a few. Segmented watchings. Yeah, yeah. One, one a, of my favorite jobs by Scarlett Johansson. Very understated. She, and she, just she's just a right. character. It's very well done. She's a zookeeper. Yeah. yeah, he's talking to his teenage son who's having girl problems, and this one of the only parts that stuck with me from this movie, which is a sweet movie, but it's not groundbreaking for yeah, me yeah. or anything. But it was nice. It's a good family flick. He said he's he's talking to his son who's having these girl problems because the girl's mad at him because he wasn't saying the right things about how he felt about her but then he felt like if he said the right things he'd feel stupid or he'd say something wrong and just teenage angst stuff and matt damon says you know sometimes all it takes is 20 seconds of just pure embarrassing unabashed courage and if you could be brave for 20 seconds i promise you you know, things will turn out good. And he's referring to that's how he got his wife, apparently. He got really brave once and went and talked to her in a coffee shop. You know, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds of just embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. And I kind of feel like that's how Tyrion acts sometimes. Of course, in this context that Matt Damon was talking and he's saying that those 20 seconds of courage will always work out for the better for you. And I don't think that that's quite the way with Tyrion. But he has those moments, you know, where he's just going to be embarrassingly brave yeah. for a few seconds. And uh, sometimes it works out for him. And in this case, it really didn't. Did not work. <laughs> no. But it was also something that needed to happen. This conflict sure. was festering. Like, he needed to confront his dad about this. If he doesn't, what? What? He just kind of cowers. Just kind of, oh, okay, I guess nothing happens. Slinks away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he kind of had to. 
I mean, if he takes that second and that third step, what next? Tywin wins again. Yeah, you got you got to you got to take that chance. What what else is going to happen? All right, are we done with Tyrion? Yes. Should we move on to the dadness? The dadness. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. This is where we will go into the Davos After Dark portion, which will be spoilery and uh, and fun for those that are interested in spoilers. Uh, Join us in two weeks. Uh, which will be our second episode of A Storm of Swords, which will cover Davos 1, Sansa 1, John 1, Danny 1, and Bran 1. So again, all 1s. That'll be fun. Alright, so join us in two weeks. Uh, drop off now if you don't want spoilers. You've been warned. Cue music. Davos After Dark. Let's talk about some Davos. Let's talk about some Davos After the Darkness. Uh, Alright. Yep. Let's start with let's get the tansy the tansy out of the way <coughs> yeah who or what is tansy i think we're all in agreement i think we are the tansy stuff i think we are so tansy is not a not a who it's a what tansy is yep. an ingredient in uh what they call uh what is it moon tea mm-hmm. which is an uh a, a boarding uh a boarding drug what yes what do you but... call it brooke like the Plan B of Westeros. <laughs> plan B of Westeros. Plan B of Westeros. Yeah. yeah. Because it does get dropped quite often. Like it does. Better yeah. spill some moon tea. Yeah. So just hump this dude. Yeah, the Westerlings. Uh, I think uh, Mama Westerling gives it to Jane, and here, of course, and yeah, it's. Uh, I think Cersei yeah. mentions it several times that she got Asha it from. It. Yeah. Every, everybody's everybody's all up in the moon tea. It's yeah. uh yeah. It's pretty common. They've how... certainly not canceled the planned parenthood in Westeros. Yeah, it's how they <laughs> avoid like the Catholic spread of children. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So Lysa said in the Sansa chapter where she dies, she said, I gave you my maiden's gift. I would have given you a son too, but they murdered him with moon tea, with tansy and mint and wormwood, spoon of honey, drop a pony roll. It wasn't me. I never knew. I only drank what father gave me. When did she say that? That pretty much seals it. Uh, She's getting shoved out the butthole. Right before she gets shoved out the butthole. Right before she goes out the moon door. Yeah. Uh. The butthole of the Eerie. (laughs) We're forever indebted to you for that, for Brooke. (laughs) (laughs) Forever and ever. So that pretty much says it. And I think that might be a credit to what you're saying about Maester Vyman, Scatty, with the tansy stuff. Yeah. Maester Vyman probably helped mix that very concoction. Yeah, he helped. And that's why he's avoiding the question. Yeah. Yeah, but it it takes it takes a while to find the origin of that tansy business. And then sure. even then there's not a direct correlation. And and also it feels like a stretch that he's like calling out one ingredient in moon it tea. Is. It's it feels weird, like isn't it? It would be more like it'd be more like Moon tea, moon tea, moon tea, or 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 like it know, does. Like it feels like a little bit of a cheat, abortion, doesn't it? Late term abortion. Yeah, like yeah, nah. yeah. It feels like a bit of a cheat on Gurm's part. I, I agree. Yeah, like uh, oh, I'll throw this out there so they can go figure it out. Yeah, just... it almost feels like he gave himself some options, like some backup plans. Oh, for, like there could be a tansy. Hmm. I was just reminded of something reading the very thing where he said he doesn't outline any of his books, right? Because mm-hmm. 
doesn't like to tie himself down. So yeah, him building in those, like you're saying, Brooks, those options is a very real possibility with him. Mm-hmm. So one thing I did have a question about, there, there's no evidence anywhere. So we, we mentioned that there's all these references to Moon Tea. Is there any reference to Moon Tea like destroying your ability to have children? I or... think it very well. I don't think there's a specific reference. Yeah. Um, but, you know. Because going forward, Lysa, she has all sorts of problems, right? Problems, yeah. And Robert, the only kid she ends or... up raising to any sort of childhood is kind of... Well, or are we meant to believe that she actually sabotages those ones too because she doesn't want Robert Aaron's kids? Mm, No, (sighs) you know. Wait, did she know that the child with Littlefinger was a boy? I don't know if there's any way she could have told. I don't know. She would have known. Well, that's the thing. She could have known if the baby was, you know, formed enough. And oh, that would have taken a lot of moon tea, and that might have damaged her system. Oh, I see. Like they waited way too long. Yeah. Uh. But I'm not. I'd have to go back and check. But, but it sounds like like it is as harmless as as the Plan B, which technically isn't like taking out any fertilized eggs. Plan B actually works by inhibiting the release of eggs, so there's nothing can happen basically. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but I don't yeah. think that's what moon tea does. Well, yes, but I'm just saying so that we're not talking so callously about, oh, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're, we're, we're cleverly calling it the plan B of Westeros, but yeah, it's, it's actually doing something much. I don't know, maybe, worse. maybe yeah. it is. Seems, we, yeah. the science around this is vague. <laughs> All we know is it stops the babies from coming somehow. Yeah. The only science yeah. we have in Westeros is the Ooh, Macers, no. and I think yeah, we've I mean, defined that they're pretty shady. Yeah, there could be some magic in this, too. I mean, yeah. it's popped up in other places, and also there has been magic associated with birthing, so... Yeah. Mm. Okay, I think we've covered it. Let's move on. It's starting to get gross. Fancy. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Right. We've talked a lot about genitalia tonight. We have, yeah. I think a lot of that was off air. But anyway, not that, oh Jesus, now I give a really bad impression of our relationships. Okay. Since I cannot Own prove it. that you are not mine is something that Tywin says to Tyrion. Um, mm. Essentially saying, since I can't prove that you're not mine, I have to, I have to treat you like a son because I can't prove that you are not mine. It kind of implies that Tywin really believes that he isn't his. Right? That's what I picked up. Yeah. Yes. And we, we've talked a little bit about, I think, Brooke, you asked if we talked about this before, the Tyrion is, is Aerys' son theory. We have talked about it a little bit. Um, there's a theory out there that, that Tyrion is a secret targ, that he's really uh, the son of Joanna and Aerys, and that they were either lovers or that Aerys forced himself upon Joanna and, and he's the product of that, and that... Tywin suspects that, uh, and that's that's the lead into this line, mm-hmm. right? Or even knows it. There was there. I I I was actually reasonably convinced by that theory, and I think I I'm not unconvinced of it. Yet. But uh, by happenstance, last night I was scrolling through some of our tweets, and there's a tweet from a Song of Ice and Fire University. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. They on questions, people submit questions, just answer them. They provide really well thought out answers and they gave this rebuttal to the Tyrion is Aries's theory and it mostly hinged around 
Tywin's personality and mm-hmm. how with the way Tywin is, remember, this is the guy who walked out completely the Tarbex and the Reigns. He's a brutal guy, right? Yeah. Uh, when he needs to be. Even with Ares being the king, would Tywin have allowed that to happen and not say anything? Whether the sex was consensual and between Ares and Joanna, which is to me a little suspect. It seems like Joanna really loved Tywin. It seems like there's general affection there, and why would she go for crazy old Ares, even though he was the king? Yeah. Um, or whether it was rape, which is also possibi- a possibility. Would Tywin have stood for that, knowing his personality? Would he have kept quiet about it? Uh, and I don't know, but that was a point that I hadn't considered before. Oh, yeah. My knee-jerk counter to that is that he really loved Joanna that's been told to us through like his sister's perspective and stuff oh yeah she was the only one that could make him smile and stuff yeah Yeah. and so dishonoring her might not Mm -hmm. be worth the price of disowning Mm -hmm. Tyrion as as his son or going after Ares yeah Seems well, like just he like, could have. Seems like he could have made an accident point. happen with Tyrion, though, along the way, without dishonoring her. Mm-hmm. It it does seem suspicious to me that if Tywin really believed that, it seems like somewhere along the line he would have got rid of him. Or, uh, yeah, Tyrion or Ares is what I'm getting at too. Is that he would have made more of a play to get rid of Ares? Yeah, that's for tougher. doing that to Joanna. It is tougher, but remember, this is the guy that committed basically genocide on a whole house. You could actually argue that he did go after Ares. That yeah. he told Jamie to stick a fork in him or a sword. Um, and and that was part of that. Right? You could argue yeah. that. That's true. The uh, but yeah, I agree with time. you both that the fact that Tyrion is still alive knowing Tywin's personality is, is interesting. Yeah. Let me just point out some of the other things in the Tyrion's Ares' son theory. A hair color, isn't that one, right? Hair color's one. He's not blonde-ish. as blonde. Yeah. He's more whitish blonde. Right. Although yeah. although Tommen is also mentioned as whitish blonde, if that means anything. Um, and then the eye color, right? He's got He's two different the, eye colors. The mismatched eyes. Yeah, which, I mean, that that's just kind of a genetic abnormality in general. I don't know that that speaks either, either way, really. Um, yeah. Nobody really has like black irises. Yeah, that sounds like a more like a mark than an actual eye color. Yeah, right. The, you know the the personality is interesting. You got a nature versus nurture discussion there, I suppose. But he and Tywin are actually very similar. They've got some marked differences in in the ends that they will go to, um, mm-hmm. but very very strategic, um, clever. Um, Manipulative. Manipulative, yeah. Um, they're very similar. You know, maybe that's a that's a nurture thing instead of a nature thing, perhaps. But um, maybe right. that's an argument against it, I suppose. Right. I'm not. I don't know if I'm ready to hitch my wagon to the theory yet, but it's I'm, compelling and it's yeah, interesting. I never have been. Just from a narrative purpose, it's interesting because it provides an easy third dragon rider. Um, right. That but... whole connection between John and. Danny and Tyrion with dead mothers is mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, we've talked about that before. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think very briefly in a, a dad episode before, but um, yeah, there's got to and, and there's got to be a third dragon rider, and unless you believe in Aegon, who's the obvious candidate? You know. Um, yeah, I've never well, thought pr- about that. John and Tyrion's natural sort of attraction to each other as friends, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They certainly have that. True. Yeah. And that's and and the third dragon rider thing, Scat, is only if you believe in prophecy. Yeah, but it, which I'm starting to call into question. But narratively, you kind of have to. Because you kind of have to believe in anything. You kind of have to believe it. You kind of have to believe it because if you start questioning all the prophecy, then you just start questioning everything. And I don't oh, know man. if that's constructive. How long Maybe do you want to talk tonight? Because yeah, because not that much longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to tell you the right. truth <laughs> let's leave it let's just say let's just say narratively if all the prophecy is garbage he spent a lot of right. time on nothing and exactly I maybe agree. that's part of his point uh, it'll be it'll be very interesting to see what his point is when he comes through what how this mm-hmm. story ends will go a long way to saying what his intent was and what his vision was about you know his message but i agree with that uh, we should revisit this when uh Tyrion kills his father <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah, for sure. Because yeah. it's happening soon. This is a whole book away, right? Isn't it Tyrion's what? last? Isn't it Tyrion's last chapter in this book? I think so. No, it happens in this book, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it does, I thought it was his, like, last, his last chapter. chapter in this book. Oh, I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't remember. It'll happen sometime. That's uh, what's cool. I, I think we can go for one more if we make it quick. You want to talk about? Chet and the the crew pulling the job a night earlier, or do you want to talk about Tyrion and uh, the next one I find in your bed I'll hang? Ooh, or Red Wedding foreshadowing. You can talk about all of them if you want. Uh, I think we've, we've, we've done enough. I think everyone's tired. So can you elaborate on this one day earlier thing? Oh, just if, if Chet and his crew had decided to pull this job one night earlier before the others decided to attack, they would have... Killed these people. Auden Withers mm. would have been in charge. They would mm-hmm. have started the trek back to the wall. And the others, right. they maybe could have still harried them back to the wall or attacked or something, but they wouldn't have been at the fist anymore. And mm. maybe a whole bunch of stuff changes. 300 okay. more brothers at the wall. The wildlings maybe would be the the, uh, the people that get attacked by the others as they come down the milk water and the others are still right there. Maybe they attack the wildlings instead of the black brothers. Just, uh... Just a just an interesting observation about how timing affects so much, I guess. Yeah. Mm, very true. Wonder if the snows had something to do with their arrival, though. With the arrival of the others. Yeah. Oh, I think the to. others brought the snow. Yeah. Or the snow yeah. let the others arrive. Oh, the reverse. It was cold enough. So, um, do you think that the uh, the bear they were hunting was the whited bear mm. that is present in the battle of the? Oh, I wonder if it's the same bear. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. yeah. They had trouble picking yeah. up its scent and stuff. Because Makes total they sense. They saw tracks, but they couldn't pick up his scent. I actually just attributed that to, to the thing that we'd said before about animals know shit. And they're like, there's uh, stuff out there. I'm not hunting this bear. Like, and that they right. were, that, the, that the fact that there was no scent was just an excuse when really the animals just knew the others were out there and didn't want to go anywhere. But you're... Argument makes a lot of sense. I think I might subscribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm good for saving the rest of the stuff for another DAD. 
Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with weapons. Red Wedding. That won't come up again, so I just want to pull that out real quick. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's making his plans right now. It's yeah. I think he's already made some. See. Yeah, I, definitely. I think he. I think we know he, that he's talked to Bolton. Yeah, I think he had he had Bolton send Glover and uh, uh, right. whoever it was. Oh, shit, I forgot Glover, Glover and whoever else it was that went down to Duskendale. He told I think he told Bolton to send them. So I think he's already he's already got things in motion. Yeah, just uh, crossing the I's and dotting the T's, as it were. Yeah, I said it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we go with the sign off? All right. Thanks everyone for joining us. This is Brooks signing off, saying it's so good to be back. It really is. This is Matt signing off. I don't know. In the words of Eminem, guess who's back? Back again. Davos Fingers is back. Tell your friends. And in keeping with the theme, paraphrasing Aerosmith, we're back. We're back in the saddle again. You are making your voice so much worse right now. I don't know if it could get any worse than that shrieking I just did to try to imitate uh, Steven Tyler. Great You're going to regret that tomorrow, Skitty. Good baseline on that song, though, Matt. Check it out. I'm I, I'm familiar with it. It's All a right. goodie. Thanks, everybody. Night. Good night, friends. And I'm so happy to be here because I've missed you guys like crazy. I'm glad that I just hit the record button so that I could catch that. <laughs> Literally, I just day, hit I it just... before you started. I'm so excited that I got it. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm so happy. But seriously, missed you. Yeah, yeah. I missed you guys too. Missed this. So, um, <sighs> you wouldn't believe how far I am. I'm halfway, I don't even want to know. I'm halfway through dance. Oh my god. <laughs> It's, it's been it's actually been great. I've been reading every chapter, and like wait, you don't normally little... read every chapter? No, I already told you, you that. I skips Ironborn, man. <laughs> Almost all the Ironborn. No, but not when you've been casting with us. Oh no, but on my original. Readings. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Just her at home read. Yeah, and like dance, I only read once, and that was like. Not under the most sober of circumstances. Yeah, so you were high all the time. Like, yeah, you told us. I'm listen. I'm high almost all the time. Okay. Is that true? Wow. No, it's not true. Um, but it's was... been like it's, it's, it's been great. True. It's been like it's not at all true. Okay. It's occasionally true on the weekends or when I'm on vacation, but otherwise it just makes me too stupid. <laughs> I don't mean being stupid, but I, uh, I just, I've been sorry. Make me stupider. Thanks, so, <laughs> thanks for catching me on that. I wasn't. I was calling myself out, not you. Mm-hmm. I just I, seriously. I uh, I just been <laughs> well, so stressed out go. lately. This morning was the first time I've ever seriously considered regular pot usage because of you know I've heard it mellows you out. I'm like, I just need to relax. I'm like super stressed out. Maybe I should find a dealer and like get get wow. going on this. Because just drive north, man, until you can buy it at any store. Well, I think I could drive to Denver yeah. faster. 
Yeah, just go uh, go east. Oh, is it east? That was northeast. <coughs> Denver's. Denver's technically southeast, just barely south. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, my geography not so good. And and on the top of that, I'm physically sick. I've been sick for almost two weeks. So. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm not looking for pity or anything, but like, yeah, it's just been, you know, it's I'm okay. It's just been stressful. Yeah. Man up, you pussy. Yeah. <sighs> so freaking supportive. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Well, I got friends on the phone. I should bring this up. I feel you, buddy. Yeah. You got it. We got your back. Guess who's back? Back again. Shit is back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? 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 I created a monster because nobody wants to see Marshall no more. They want shitty on chopped liver. Well, if you want shitty, this is what I'll give you a little bit of me, we, which was all hard because of vodka. Then it'll jumpstart your heart quicker than that. Guess who's back, 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 back again. Shady's back.